where did this journey start? I've never done a lead before, so I appreciate you guys or a chair. So I appreciate you guys giving me the the space and and letting me uh, stumble through this. Um, let's go back. I guess I should mention um, that I uh, have a lot of Irish ancestry. I think a lot of people it's it's this is primarily an Irish group. So my mother's maiden name is Egan, and then my grandmother's was Gallagher. So and um, yeah, so it, it's nice to have that connection. So I would say for me, you know, I kind of came to this late. Um, my dad is an alcoholic, uh, but I didn't really see a lot of that when I was younger or even when I was a teenager. It happened a lot after I left the house. So I am the oldest of four. Um, and when I went to college, like I didn't drink in high school, I went to college, I was the responsible one. So I always made sure everybody else didn't get in trouble and I didn't drink excessively or have any problems with that. Uh, even after that, um, there weren't any issues probably until my late 30s or early 40s. Uh, I'm 51 now. Um, so I do remember though, like alcohol was always sort of there, right? But I remember the first time that for me, opiates were sort of magical. And I had gotten um, a root canal done. And, you know, he gave me a few Vicodin or something to go home with. But I took some Advil and went to bed. But I remember waking up at two in the morning and my face was throbbing. And I took two Vicodin and I was watching this documentary about a spelling bee. <laughs> and I still have this really clear memory of how magical that time was. It was like two or three hours. And I was like, oh, this is being high, right? This is really nice. Now, I didn't go after it anymore after that. That was probably 20 years ago that happened. Um, so I think where I first got in trouble was 12 years ago, around there, 38, 39. So um, I used to do mixed martial arts. Uh, so like uh, Conor McGregor back in, uh, in Ireland, I know he's a, a big one. Um, so I, I was doing that for a while and I flipped over on a mat and herniated a disc in my back and it was pretty bad. Like I'd never had pain like that before. And I remember in particular, like I had a limp, even there was so much nerve impingement. Um, sorry, I, I skipped over a part. I, I, um, Charlie mentioned this would be important to say. So after college, I went to medical school. Um, and then I was a family practice doctor for a while. And then I became a psychiatrist. And so I worked in Chicago for a long period of time until I moved to Cincinnati a few years ago and um, did a lot of kind of psychoanalytic psychotherapy with people as well as medication stuff. Um, so I think that has some bearing, you know, it's something I dealt with with substance abuse, but, you know, never really considered myself at risk for it. Um, and was really kind of, I think, undereducated about it until I myself, I uh, got sober. So um, herniated the disc and was a lot of intensive rehab, physical therapy. After about a year and a half, it got better. Um, but I do remember they had me on tramadol. Now, I don't know if you have tramadol UK or elsewhere, but it's like an opioid agonist antagonist. Um, so it's not as powerful as something like Vicodin. Um, and I was taking it twice a day, like they told me to. And then they said, you could stop it. And I'd been on it maybe six months. And I stopped it. And I remember the day afterwards, I was like laying in bed trying to go to sleep. And I was like, what is wrong with my legs? Because they were starting to really scramble. And I was like, 
I'm having withdrawal symptoms from being on tramadol, which they said wasn't addictive or didn't cause any problems, right? So, um, but after I got better, my life was pretty good for two or three more years. Um, you know, I drank, I went out a lot, but it wasn't problematic. I never had a DUI, never caused any relationship issues. Um, and it wasn't until I got re-injured. Um, I got re-injured bowling of all stupid things. Um, but my, so I had started having chronic back pain and leg pain. And exercise was no longer an outlet for me. I could not perform at the levels I used to. Um, and I continued to have this sort of, uh, the way I've heard it described best is this performance-based self-esteem or productivity-based self-esteem where, you know, everything that I was was all about what I did rather than who I was, right? It's like, I worked too much, didn't take care of, I, I took care of myself, but I really wasn't making enough space to really take good mental health care of myself. And I was in therapy as well, like once a week trying to work on relationship issues. Um, but I was still really ignorant of um, a lot of issues for me that I can see much more clearly now. So I get injured again. I start back with the tramadol. You know, that's okay for a while. Um, and it's on and off, but I'm starting to get more burned out and more stressed out from my work because um, I'm working way too much and my pain continues to increase. So I have problems sitting is a big thing. So I was standing with my patients for a while because I could not sit and my pain got so intolerable by the time I, so this is probably four or five years ago, like I was starting to drink too much. I was using the tramadol or Vicodin. I was smoking weed when I wanted, you know, in the evenings just to try and manage the pain. Now, I didn't make any lifestyle changes, right? I didn't make any change like, well, maybe I should work less and that would be better for me, right? I didn't listen to what my body was trying to tell me and why I was struggling. Um, so what I tried first was a geographic cure. So um, I decided I had, um, it had been really, work had been stressful and I had, I bought this uh, place and tried to rehab it, which worked well, but I had to, it was really stressful. It was like a year long of doing this work on this house. Um, and so I, you know, I finished this place and I said, well, I'm going to live here forever. And literally like six months later, I was like, I got to get out. I can't handle this anymore. I am literally falling apart. Um, and I didn't know what to do. So I, my family lived in Cincinnati at the time. And I said, I'm going to get a job there and I'm going to relocate. I'm going to cut my work. I'm going to change how I work. I'm not going to do you know, as much work as I used to. I'm going to work in a university system that's more protected. Um, so I moved. I, I just said, I'm out. And I closed my practice in like six months. And it was terrible. It was really hard. Um, it was not a good move. But at the time, I didn't know what else to do. So I just abandoned ship, basically. I mean, in an orderly fashion, but I abandoned ship. And my substance abuse got better. So I went to a program, uh, a residential program for chronic pain, not for substance abuse, for chronic pain. And they tapered me off a lot of stuff. Um, I tried a lot of different things for my pain. I had a high frequency stimulator put in. I was on like a, uh, like a medication patch for pain, um, but I was still really struggling. So I came here and things were okay for six months or a year. Um, I wasn't drinking too much. I wasn't using the opiates too much. I wasn't smoking that much marijuana. 
And I thought, uh, you know, I'm okay. Things are getting better. And then COVID happened, right? And, and so COVID was really bad for me because I was extremely isolated. Um, you know, I had work to go to. And if it wasn't for work, I don't know what would have happened. Um, you know, I couldn't really see my family. Like, you know, everybody else knows all this. But I didn't, and it left me alone with me, which was a problem. Um, and I was certainly restless, irritable, and discontent, as they say. And I started drinking more. And I started smoking weed more. And I started using the opiates more. And my pain wasn't even that. It was sort of bad. But my pain was like, my pain was a signal of not only physical pain, but I think emotional pain that I was not recognizing and dealing with appropriately. And I wanted to medicate it. I didn't want to feel it. I wanted to get away from it. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And, and through the magic of substances, you know, I could sort of keep it at bay. But it got to the point where during COVID, I, I probably put on, I think, 30 pounds from eating too much, drinking wine. Wine is what I drank all the time. Um, then I tried to control it, right? I'll only drink on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays, but I won't drink as much. And I would just white knuckle it until I got to Friday. And then I would drink to the point where I was drinking so fast, like I would get kind of, I'd get kind of dizzy and nauseous pretty quickly. And it'd be like 8.30 at night. And I'd already drank a bottle and a half of wine. I was like, what am I going to do? So I quit drinking. I, you know, I quit drinking in probably January of 21. My family, now, one of the things about COVID was, you know, nobody really saw this, right? I was at home all the time. Um, and my family would see it on occasion, but it were really limited glimpses. And prior to COVID, I remember this was before I moved, my sister and my mother, um, my, so in terms of background. So my father was a bad alcoholic. Um, I did not really see it until later in life. Um, but he got to the point where, you know, he drank himself into a couple of comas. He had extreme pancreatitis that collapsed his lungs that led to heart problems. And he died. He, then he got so many um, neurological impacts from that, that he was demented at 61, 62 and in a nursing home and died at 65, about 10 years ago. Um, so my brother was a bad alcoholic, my cousin, my uncle, both my grandfathers. So all the genetics were there and I didn't pay attention to that. Um, and the thing was, my brother was a much worse drinker than I was. He was, not to compare, but he was like my dad. He would drink a lot, he would get belligerent, he would get angry. And I was quieter about it. So basically it let me slide under the radar because my brother drank a lot. Um, he and I, when I went to the chronic pain program in 19, January of 19, he went to rehab for, for opiates and alcohol, just like me. Um, and he stopped drinking for a while. And then my drinking got a little more noticeable. Um, in particular, there was one time, I guess it was over Thanksgiving or something. Um, and my sister said something to me and my mom said something to me and I, you know, I brought her back under wraps for a while. The other thing is I was never married. I didn't have any kids. So nobody really saw the devastation that was happening, you know, and I kept it pretty much under wraps. You know, I like to think so. Um, I was lucky I never got picked up for a DUI or anything like that. I, I tried to control that. And what I did primarily was go out with people, have a couple of drinks with them to look normal and then go home and drink a lot. Right. Because I didn't want to get a DUI. I didn't want to get in trouble. And so I had enough sort of 
discipline about my drinking to keep that and, and realize, hey, this is probably excessive, right? But I don't want people to see it. Um, so as it got as it got worse through COVID, um, you know, I was drinking way too much. I was smoking weed quite often. The opiate use was up and down depending on availability, um, right? Because you weren't seeing doctors that often, so I'd get refills all the time pretty easily. And I had legitimate pain problems. Um, so um, the situation is getting worse where, I, where my drinking is just getting terrible and I can realize it, so I stop. And that was January, or Feb I think February of 21. But then, you know, my opiate use just increased, right? Uh, marijuana use increased. You know, anything else to just keep it, you know, just because I, and, and oh, gummies. Gummies was another popular thing because it was all legal in the U.S. Um, not everywhere, but a lot of play, a lot of the states. So, you know, I just changed substances and increased the other ones. I did lose all the weight from all the drinking, but that was about it. Um, so as it kept going, kept going, I remember in particular, there was one thing that tipped me over the edge. And and I knew I was in trouble. I just didn't know what to do. And And the other thing that was really sort of complicating the factor is, you know, if you have a medical license or any kind of like, as they say, safety sensitive position. So if you're a pilot, if you do something like that, let's say you're an air traffic controller, right? You have a license, right? And they can take that away from you. And particular doctors are very fearful about being identified as having substance abuse problems, right? Because, you know, you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want them to take your license away and you can't practice and you lose your profession and a big part of your identity, right? Um, but I don't even realize all this stuff. So, um, I didn't really, I just didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I was getting withdrawal a lot. I knew I was in trouble. Um, but I was really kind of floundering as to what to do. And I had started working with a sober coach, but I wasn't, I was lying to the sober coach the entire time. I told him I quit drinking and everything's fine. Um, but it was kind of like this lifeline, right? I wasn't attending AA meetings or doing any of that, but I had this guy in the, you know, kind of in the background that I would check in with because I knew, you know, I was going to need help, I think. Um, so I went to see a movie with my brother and I was getting this place of like, I don't give a shit, you know, I'm going to take whatever it was, I think 10 tramadol at once, but you're supposed to take one, three times a day or something. Cause I was like, well, this is probably the last I'm going to be able to do this. I got to get off this stuff, you know, to kind of blow out before you decide you're going to quit. Um, and I woke up and the credits were rolling. I had missed the entire movie. Um, and I'd never done that before. Um, and we went and I drove, we went to my um, mom's house for a, a birthday party for my aunt. And it was, it's still really shameful and embarrassing to remember, like they said, I was trying to teach the kids how to work this game. We were playing some uh, board game and I wasn't making any sense. And even my aunt, who's 82 years old, was like, what is wrong with you right that i i certainly seem kind of messed up and i said and they my sister and my mom said you need to get help and i said okay and i remember crying to my dog uh, a lot and saying okay i'm gonna have to do something so i reach out to my sober coach um and he recommends this place and really you know it was like literally on a friday and i started there on a Tuesday, I think it was like Friday. I tell work, I got to go. 
right? And I don't know if people at work recognized that I was struggling. You know, you always think you've got it under wraps and that everything looks fine, but it was also COVID too, right? So people weren't interacting enough that maybe I would have been noticed sooner or somebody would have said something like, hey, are you okay? I think I maybe had one or two people ask me that, right? But, you know, you always deny. It's like, oh, no, everything's fine. Oh, yeah, I'm just tired or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You make something up. So, I, you know, I'm panicked. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I go there on a, a Tuesday. And it was um, it was really difficult first couple of weeks. Um, first of all, you know, they put you on a, uh, a detox taper. So you're kind of goofy and out of it. Um, and then, I mean, there's so much stuff, right, that is boiling around in you that you have not been managing, or you've been, you know, as I say, I always kind of outsourced it to medications or alcohol or substances, right? If it came to managing my emotions, that's what I was going to do, and particularly difficult emotions. Um, so the loneliness, the difficulty of like being in COVID, um, the isolation of it was really hard. Um, and I did, you know, I'd only been here a year, so I didn't really have any friends. Uh, I had some people at work that I was connected to, but everybody I knew was back in Chicago. Um, so that that just was really hard. And then I was really worried about what everybody was going to say, right? You know, that I was going to be gone for eight weeks or however it was to go. So when you, for a, a physician or anybody that's like a nurse or a physician's assistant or nurse practitioner. So I went to the detox thing. And I didn't realize that I had to tell the medical board that I was in trouble, right? That I had problems. Um, and I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that, right? I'm not telling anybody about this. And, and it took me a few weeks to get to the point of, you know what? I think if I'm going to make it, right? And, and if I'm going to be able to remain sober, I'm probably going to need some oversight, right? Um, because... There's not anybody really for me that that would see my deterioration otherwise, right? Because I can continue to hold up a good front to the family and maybe at work. And since there's nobody at home, the risk I thought was just much higher. Um, but it was really hard. I remember I was like really angry and upset about it. And, you know, you have so much emotion going on when you're kind of detoxing, getting out of that stuff. And it's like you go from anger and sadness and then you feel pretty good for a time because you're not actually you know, you're not worrying about where my next drink is coming from or where my pills are coming from or where this is coming from and calculating everything and how am I going to have what I need in order to maintain myself? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, it was, but it was really hard to go through the detox. And I was there for, we had, we had to go for six weeks. I think sometimes you have to go for 12. Um, but I went for six weeks. Um, and my pain was terrible during that time. So when you go off opiates, you have this period of what they call hyperalgesia, which means your pain increases because you're coming, you know, your opiate receptors are now being uh, sort of freed up again. And so the, the pain sensations are much, much worse, right? Um, and, you know, can't use opiates, just use, you know, uh, non-steroidals like ibuprofen or Tylenol. Um, so I come back and coming back was really hard. Again, I was really worried about what everybody else is going to think. And, you know, they, they kept telling me this, but I didn't, they're like, you know, 99% of the people are just going to be happy to see you and that you're okay. 
And I didn't really believe that, it, but it was true. When I came back, people were just happy to see me and that I was okay. And I don't think anybody, you know, people who were closer to me did ask like, and I covered it up. You know, I, I don't feel comfortable saying, you know, I'm an addict yet or an alcoholic. Um, I don't think I said in the beginning either. I'm sorry, addict, alcoholic, sober date, 9-14-2021. So yes, it's been a little over a year. Um, I, what I will say is that, I, yeah, I just don't feel, I know some people are much more comfortable about it. Um, right now, it's still something I, I tell, I've told all my friends, all my family, everybody that's close to me knows about it. Um, and again, I don't think any of my, none of my friends really said, oh, we thought you had a problem. They were like, oh, okay, you know, or maybe we noticed a few things, but nobody was like, you're a disaster. Um, and I think the reason, you know, moving was part of that. My deterioration here was pretty isolated. And my other periods were like, you know, not terrible. Um, as some people would say, I had a high bottom, right? I didn't get into, like, I didn't have a DUI. I didn't get into major trouble where I lost relationships or family or my job or my house. Um, so I, I consider myself very lucky and very fortunate. And I have a lot of uh, gratitude about that. Um, that I didn't end up in those places because I, I could have easily done it, right? I could have easily gotten a DUI or something um, and been in even more trouble. So coming back, you know, you know, at first it's all about just going to meetings, right? And just trying to make sure that, you know, I can manage the urges to drink and use, right? That I'm not gonna like run out and do stupid stuff. Now, one of the things that helps is when you when you're a physician or somebody in that kind of position and you've told the board about it they monitor you now so i have random drug testing three times a month three to four times a month and they can blood test me at any time right so anything i do is going to show up and if i do anything they will suspend my license and i'll be in real trouble like i won't be able to work for six months or a year um there'll be a lot of professional uh problems with it so, I mean, this is why the success rate for physicians and nurse practitioners and nurses in these programs is high because you have a lot on the line, right? Your livelihood, your money, your reputation, your profession. Um, so I think they quote the numbers at like 80 to 90% at five years because they monitor you for five years, right? And you have to have regular check-ins. Um, so I... As much as I will say I hate that at times, you know, nobody likes being told what to do and have people monitor them like they're a child. Um, I will say it has kept it kept me sober, especially early. Um, if I didn't have that, I don't know what would have happened, right? Because I continue to have pain and I continue to have struggles and I continue to have problems. And I don't know if I, you know, maybe I would have, right? All I can say is that I. I won't say I'm grateful for having the, mo the monitoring. I will say that I am better for it. Um, so when I came home, uh, start going to meetings, I remember the first day I came home, um, I, it was really hard because I, uh, sitting for a long time, so I had to fly, you know, flew back home and I was in a ton of pain and I was really anxious, really anxious and restless. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I am going crazy. And I went to a meeting. And it was a meeting at this place here called Prospect House, which a lot of the people that uh, Charlie and I know are on the board or have been there before. And it's kind of a rehab recovery place. And the guys were super nice. And it was like, 
I would go to the meeting and you're like, oh, I feel better, right? It was like, oh, I, I'm more relaxed. You know, I'm not nearly as restless. My pain is better. And it's like, that's where it first dawned on me, like how much the isolation of substance use is there, right? How much that keeps you trapped. And I hear it all the time that the opposite of, um, the opposite of the sort of substance use isolation is connection. And that's what being in these kind of meetings, whether they're free thinkers or AA or, you know, smart recovery is another one. There's a, I think there's a Buddha recovery one. It, I think the social connection is what's so key. Um, and the fact that you bring your problems to here instead of isolating and trying to fix them on your own. And for me in particular, right, when I spend too much time in my head, that is not a good place. And I know if I'm too much in my head or I'm struggling with things, then I need to go to a meeting or talk to my sponsor or talk to somebody else, right? Which I would have not done before. I would have just said, oh, I can handle it, or I would have drank more or whatever it was in order to not deal with it. So coming back, my family's been super supportive. Um, my brother, he drinks now. He started drinking again. And, and I think I probably would have, you know, he was sober for about a year. And I think I would have done the same thing as him if it wasn't for the monitoring. And I think it would have been a, a I think it would have been a big mistake. Um, so I remember like it was Christmas and my brother was drinking that night and that was really hard to watch him because he was drinking red wine, which I love to drink. And he was getting kind of, you know, that kind of oblivious, sloppy place where you're like, I'm not feeling any pain. And I was like, I want to be there. You know, I want to be where I don't have any pain. I don't have to hurt like this. And it, that night I didn't sleep that well. And I was like, I got to go home, right? You got to have an exit. <laughs> and it was like, I got to go. And so, but my family didn't ever criticize me for that or anything. They were always really supportive. And now it's almost like normal, right? Um, I, I have not put myself in too many situations where drinking has been around. Um, you know, I go to, out to dinner with people now that COVID has kind of subsided uh, for, for the most part. Um, and I, I'll, be, I'll be out there. This is something I think everybody recognizes, right? You're sitting out there and you're watching somebody and they leave half of a beer or some wine and you're like then you don't leave you don't leave that that's a that's a no that's a mistake that's a foul you cannot do that right and they're sitting there like it's a nice sunny day and somebody's having a glass of wine and you're sitting on the patio of this restaurant you're like oh that looks really nice right but i can't have one because when i think about it you know the, the and it's the classic thing what is it one is too many and a thousand is never enough for me, it was like, because I want oblivion again, right? I don't want to have just a glass of wine with my family at dinner, right? I want to drink it all. And that is less frequent now and not as painful, but it still shows up quite often. Like last week, um, I had a couple of things happen. There was an incident at work. And then uh, the IRS, I got a letter from the IRS about money I probably owed. So nobody lets get a letter from the IRS or from the tax body wherever you live, right? And it was like, really like, it was two big things like that in a week. And it was like, oh, yeah, I really want to drink. I really want to get away from all this. I do not want to feel it. It is uncomfortable and unpleasant. Not even uncomfortable and unpleasant. It is like almost overwhelming, right? But instead of drinking or using, it's like, well, let me talk to my sponsor. Let me go to a meeting and talk about these things that happened. And I am not much of a sharer usually about those kind of struggles. Um, 
I don't want to, um, it feels like I'm asking for sympathy or something like that when I put these issues out there. And, and I've had to really rethink that, that we're all doing that, right? That we're all looking for being understood and heard, validated, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, people really just respond to what you're saying. And, and I got more comfortable talking in AA about things that I normally wouldn't talk about. Um, and, and it's been a really positive thing for me. Now, I don't like being an addict and alcoholic. Like some people are like, I'm grateful I'm an addict or alcoholic. I'm not at that place, right? Uh, I'm not grateful for this. Uh, I wish I could drink like normal people. I don't think that I, I, I don't know. You know, you always hope that maybe you can, but for me, there's nothing that's going to happen for five years, right? And then hopefully by that time, I'll be in a good enough space where, you know, drinking or using doesn't seem very appealing and it's not something I want to do because I have a lot of time invested in this and my life is much better for it. I will say my pain, though difficult, is not nearly as bad as when I was using opiates all the time. I think there becomes this issue. I don't know if people have chronic pain, but there becomes this thing of like, well, my pain, am I having pain so I can get more drugs, right? Or use more as an excuse, right? Not because I'm actually in pain, but am I sort of unconsciously or subconsciously sort of accentuating it? And now when I don't feed those receptors, right? Those kind of dopamine receptors that make you feel like, oh yeah, this is great, right? You know, I just have to manage it other ways and I have to make lifestyle changes. And that's one of the biggest things I did was set boundaries for myself. I went back to work and I'm like, I can't do all those things I was doing anymore because I did the same thing I did when I lived in Chicago, right? I started working too much again, doing way too many things and it was overwhelming. So now I don't do those things. I say no. Um, and and I, I talked to Charlie about this before. So in terms of the feedback, like I think my relationships are much better. I think my understanding of myself is much better. Um, I think there are things I just never realized before because I was always covering them up with alcohol or drugs, right? And I wasn't dealing with them. So I understand myself better. Um, so, you know, you have like your boss that gives you a yearly review. And so to emphasize to me that being sober is a good thing, she said, I think I'm trying to remember the comment that I have that I set boundaries very well and have the best self-care, which I would have never said before. And then I got nominated for employee of the year. And it's like, OK, I get it. Being sober is probably positive for me. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but overall, I think, you know, I'm in a much better place, even though I struggle with things still. Right. Because for a while, six months or so, everything's beautiful. Right. It's really great. You're in that pink cloud sort of effect. And I didn't realize I was in the pink cloud till things started getting tougher, um, where it wasn't just about being sober. It was about doing some different kind of work. I think it was Charlie or somebody said to me, it's, you know, being sober or being recovery is the ticket to ride. There's a lot of stuff working through character defects, right? Uh, I know you guys aren't a 12-step place, but, you know, you there's a lot you have to deal with that went along with being an alcoholic or an addict. Um, so I will say that I think, you know, my life is much better for it. There's still a lot of struggles. Um, I still have urges to use at times uh, that are tough, especially being around other people who look like they're having a good time. So I don't tend to go to those things still. Uh, I just, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm ready for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it certainly changed me.
uh, for the positive. And, and um, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to continue doing it um, and making sure that I stay on the right course. Um, and, and having these connections and these kind of places and sort of like, as they say, being in the rooms is what's key. That's really the key to me staying this way. So I think that's everything.